After my all-out assault last week during the sermon on the abuse of exclamation marks in our culture, I didn't have to wait longer than five minutes, of course, after the service to start getting the snide text messages and Facebook allusions. Invitations to lunch from some of you on my phone with a ridiculous number of exclamation marks behind it. Public apologies, alleged apologies on social media for using too many exclamation marks. But I know we're less than half-hearted because the apologies included a dozen or so exclamation marks. My favorite story after all of that happened this last week, and it happened at home. Um, it was completely unintentional. Uh, my wife, Ellen, she, she had just received a text from a family member t- giving her some really exciting, wonderful news. And she's texting this family member back, and she's concentrating and typing out the message and kind of saying the message out loud to herself in a really monotone sort of voice. And she's just like, that's very, very exciting exclamation mark. (laughs) It was just like this perfect, perfect end to the whole thing. An exclamation mark after a monotone sort of voice like that. I liked it. Well, last week we looked at Jesus healing a man with leprosy. We saw how Jesus dealt with the man's shame and healed him of it with the same grace that he uses to heal our shame. And this morning we're going to find Jesus healing again. Our passage this morning, it reveals a common theme that we find actually throughout all four Gospels, really. For those who know their shame, who have it staring at them constantly in the face and they're aware of it, like the leprous man from last week, their healing comes swiftly. But for those who don't, Jesus often works, does the work of revealing deeper issues first. This is the good news of our all-wise healer who exposes us, not to shame us, but to help us see the shame that's already deep below the surface so that we can then marvel at his healing grace. And we find it in Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. You'll see it on page 8 of your bulletin. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles and to the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He turned to the man who was paralyzed. He said to him, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. 
And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Let's pray. Lord, we need the power of your Spirit this morning to show us, through your holy word, the deeper issues that you would have us consider. The deeper issues in our own hearts, the deeper issues that lie there, maybe even dormant to some extent without our knowledge, which is often the case. But we need your grace and your mercy and your spirit to reveal these things for us through your gospel, through your preached word. And then we need you by the same Holy Spirit to show us what Jesus has done about it. What he has done and is doing about it. Through who he is and what he's accomplished for us. We need your spirit to do this for us this morning. To open the eyes of our hearts. And so we ask for this grace from you now. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. It's been one of those weeks for us at home. A week filled with too little sleep, too little peace and quiet, too much noise, too much crying. Too much grossness coming out of a baby's nose and mouth. And all of that is unpleasant enough in itself, I guess. But what makes it worse when a baby is sick is that you're dealing with someone who hasn't developed the rational ability yet for you to sit down with and say, Okay, Emily, I know you don't like this medicine. None of us do. But you have to take it because it's going to help you get better. We can do that with Aubrey, but we can't do it with an infant like Emily. And so what do you have to do? Well, you have, you have to be willing many times over the course of the week to become a hated Nazi in the eyes of your child. You have to be willing to call for the assistance of another parent, another child, an unsuspecting friend, or maybe a family pet, or any other willing member of your little Gestapo unit to hold down your child's arms and legs and to keep her head from moving so that you can force this medicine down her screaming throat little by little because... It has been conveniently prescribed by the medical community so that doses are given in gallons instead of ounces. And after a while, your nerves are just frayed. But at that point, you're not interested in meeting the need your child thinks she has. You know you have to address her deeper need. Her deeper issue that might actually kill her if you don't address it. Because this week you understand, Emily, our daughter, has thought all along that her greatest problem, by far, her greatest problem, she would swear to you if she could speak, her greatest problem in the world is her parents forcing another dose of this liquid into her body. Worst problem, number one. But of course we have known that her greatest problem has been 
way worse than that. Her greatest problem has been a fever that is dehydrating her. And more than anything, although we have just as a hard time believing it, as Emily has had believing us this week, the reality is that you and I, more than anything else, our deepest need is to be holy. We need to see Jesus. We need to want Jesus. We need to love Jesus. We need to like Jesus. We need to be like Jesus. This is our deepest need, our deepest issue. And God is a perfect parent who always gives us what we need. The man who is paralyzed in our passage this morning, he had real needs. Needs that were absolutely clear for all to see. Unlike most of those who had come to be healed that day, this man's need was so obvious because it took four other men just to bring him near to Jesus. We know that it was four men because of Mark's account of the same story. The man was paralyzed, unable to move at all. And after all the work that these guys did for him, carrying up to the roof of the house, digging through the hardened earth and the mud that were used to make roofs back then, removing the wooden planks and the tiles, and then lowering him down to Jesus, who's engulfed in a crowd of people, some who are now upset that this guy is cutting in front of them, some who might be actually pretty impressed for the care and the commitment and the mercy these friends have for the paralytic. After all this, Jesus looks down at the paralyzed man at his feet, and he shocks everyone with this statement. Man, your sins are forgiven you. The Pharisees, they're shocked for theological reasons. We'll get to that later. But just pretend, just pretend that you're someone, an average Joe or Joan, standing in that stinky, sweaty, stuffy room, looking down at a wheezing man on the floor who can't move anything, and then you hear the greatest healer that has ever walked the land completely misdiagnose the man's problem. Your sins are forgiven you. Excuse me, what? I mean, as much as Peter, as much as Peter is known throughout all the gospel accounts as the guy with the big mouth who opens his mouth and says really awkward things at really awkward times. I mean, shouldn't we be kind of proud of Peter at this moment that he's not like coming into the scene to say something? Like Jesus, I'm not sure if you noticed, but he's paralyzed. <laughs> Trust me. Because I think everybody in the room at that moment was kind of caught off guard like that. Just like we're caught off guard when Jesus does this to us. He does it a lot. He does it a lot. When Jesus does things in our lives to reveal 
our deeper issues. Because like this man, we always think that our paralysis is our deepest issue. Whatever paralysis looks like for you, however you define it right now in your life, I'm sure it changes. It changes a lot for me. We always think that the issue that's causing us the most felt pain, the most felt suffering, the thing that has us questioning our own identity, our own purpose, our own hope for peace, the thing that is the most obvious and recognizable discomfort, this issue has got to be my biggest issue. And this belief affects our relationships with others and it affects our relationship with God. It affects our relationships with the community in a couple of ways. First of all, we're so convinced that our felt suffering or hurt or offense is our deepest issue that we will often only listen to those who agree with our self-diagnosis. I'm sure all of us could name a lot of people we've known or some people we've known who will run from small group to small group, from counselor to counselor, from church to church, from pastor to pastor. Not so that they can find someone who will agree that they have no issues, although I suppose sometimes that could be the case. But it's usually their quest to find someone who will agree that, yes, their own self-diagnosis of the problem was the right one, the deepest issue that they have. And some of us have developed victim complexes by repeating this pattern. We're always too ready and looking for the attention of others by telling them yet another story of paralysis, another problem that's happening to us, rarely through us or because of us, but to us because we crave the attention And we need someone to agree with us that, yes, we are, in fact, once again, the victim of a life that's harder than everybody else's. And sometimes these folks will turn away again and again from those who have loved them well, who have sacrificed for them, who have sat with them in suffering and given them truth and love if those people won't agree that the problem they say they have is their deepest problem. But when you belong to Jesus, when you're really his, guess what? He loves you too much to let you get away with that. He looks at you with firm love and says, yeah, yeah, I know, I see it. I see your suffering. I see your behavioral addiction. I see your loss of a job. I see your difficult marriage. I see your rebellious child. I see it all and I care about it all. But you have a bigger, deeper problem that I want to address right now. And do you know how he does that? He does it through his word, which was written by his spirit, as it is interpreted and ministered to you by his people who are filled with his spirit. 
Jesus, the head of the church, has told us that he uses his body, the people of the church, to minister to his body. And this challenges our pride. And it challenges the notion that we are the best experts about ourselves because it calls us to acknowledge that Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves and he imparts that wisdom that he has to us most often through others. Most often. But the second way that this passage underlies our relationship to the community, is by the fact that this guy, he's carried in by four other gods. It goes without saying that, that their presence and their ministry was absolutely essential. I mean, this guy would have been immobilized lying at home without them. And this too is a lesson for our own paralysis as well. Because while there may be some of us who like to play the victim too much, others of us spend far too much time trying to figure out how much pain and suffering we can tolerate, whether it's physical or spiritual, without getting others involved. Why? Why do we do that? Why why do some of us find it so hard to get other people involved, the rest of the community, the rest of the church involved with what we're struggling with? Well, once again, I really do think it's about as simple as masking some pride a lot of times. Well, I don't want to be a burden. Well, there are others who are hurting a lot more than me, and and they should be getting the attention. And these are phrases, I mean, they sound good, they sound unselfish, and like we're thinking of others, but sometimes they can be a mask for pride. Because if somebody else is in a far worse condition, if somebody else needs the attention of others while we can handle our own paralysis by ourselves, well, that says something about us, doesn't it? It says something that feeds a part of us that's always hungry for more. But the faithful friends, the faithful friends of this paralyzed person remind all of Jesus' disciples that we will live forever in need of the church we are organically connected to. Separating yourself from the community of faith, from the elders, from the deacons, keeping the church at arm's length and uninvolved in order to fix your own paralysis. It's like a wounded arm or a wounded leg thinking that it's going to have a better chance if it separates itself from the rest of the body first. You can't fight disease by separating yourself from the source of life. And so these men in the story strike at our pride of individualism. And Jesus' diagnosis of the paralytic's deeper issue strikes at our desire to always play the victim. But our belief, our belief that our most felt need, your belief, my belief, that our most felt need is also our deepest issue, that belief also affects our relationship to God. Because God regularly allows a lot of hard and trying and difficult problems and sufferings to come into our lives. You could name probably several this morning, and so could I. 
And we should never pretend to know all the whys, all of the reasons why God has allowed something to happen to us or anyone else. That's not what this passage is saying. That's not what I'm saying. We're not told in this passage why this man was paralyzed. The fact that Jesus is pointing to his sin first does not mean that he was paralyzed because of something that he did. It just simply means that his being a sinner, like all of us, was a bigger problem than his paralysis. His paralysis was separating him from a more enjoyable life, but his sin was separating him from God. But at the same time, Scripture teaches that in the midst of our suffering, whether it comes through something that's happened to us or whether it's come because of sin that we have done, either way, God uses it. God uses that difficulty to point to deeper issues within us that require faith. How long, how long had this man been paralyzed? And we don't really know. We don't know how long he'd been paralyzed, but, but I would bet everything that I own that however long it had been, it was way too long for the paralyzed man. Way too long for him. And, and for many of us, our deepest issues, they're, they're not issues that popped up for us overnight. Tragedies in our lives can come overnight They can happen in a second, unexpectedly. But then how we deal with those tragedies, our responses to the tragedies, that grows out of who we have been in the process of becoming for many years. And the problem that we often have in a fast food microwave culture like ours is that yes, first first of all, we want everyone to agree with our own self-diagnosis, and then we want someone who's going to give us a fix, a solution that we just assume on the front end is going to work fairly quickly. We approach our biggest needs, even our spiritual needs, as though they can be addressed the way we might address an engine problem in our car. A plumbing issue in the bathroom or or an electrical problem in the kitchen. And we think that we're being really patient and we're being long-suffering and we're being generous if we allow for months or maybe even a year for these things to be addressed in our lives. And I suppose if we were built like an electrical system or a series of pipes, waiting months would be really generous. But we're not. much more like many of the metaphors that you find in Scripture, we're built like the oak tree in my front yard. We're built like the oak tree in my front yard. Do you know how long my oak tree has been there? Good, because I actually don't know either, and if you knew and I didn't, that would freak me out a little bit. But my house was built in the mid-50s. And so I think it's a good bet It's a good guess that maybe our tree could be about as old. Who knows? It's an old tree. It's pretty tall. But our our tree, over the last many decades, it has grown in some good directions, and it has grown in some bad directions. So when you come and you look at the tree, you can see 
certain branches, that you're, certain limbs that you're kind of really proud of, even though you had nothing to do with it. But you're kind of, you know, you look at the, the limb, the tree, and you go, yeah, that's a beautiful one. I like that. It's adding to the aesthetic of the tree. That's adding to the symmetry of the tree. It's a beautiful limb. I like how it's growing that way. It's full of life, lots of leaves. But then you can look at other limbs and you're like, that's not good. That limb is, it's dead. There's no leaves on that limb. That needs to be cut down. That needs to be cut off. Those limbs on, on that tree, I mean, they're, they're getting really big and heavy. And they're also overhanging the house, which is a problem if the right storm comes along. But the point is that, that both kinds of growth, the proper growth of the tree and the improper growth of the tree, both kinds, both kinds of growth have taken a while to get to be what they are. And your lust and your greed and your judgmentalism and your impatience and your eating disorder and your sexual identity crisis and your angry, distrustful heart and mind have taken a long time to grow into the specimens that they are today. And redirecting tree growth, it's hard work, but it's also long work. It's long work. And you are much, 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 much more complicated, and you are much more beautiful, and you are much more valuable to the Father than any tree. Because miracles, miracles are, they're not just about parted seas, and they're not just about bread from heaven, and they're not just about blind people who can now see. These miracles, they make the headlines, but God does them in a few seconds. The miracles where God gets sweaty and he works the longest is in defeating death and defeating sin in me. Forgiving my sins, cleansing me of my sins, and then making me into a person who doesn't want to sin anymore. These are the long-term miracles of God in all of his people. And just because they take a lifetime doesn't mean that they're not incredibly miraculous. Because without his miraculous power working these things in us, we would just, we would just spend a lifetime becoming more sophisticatedly evil. And so what we must remember is that Jesus' goodness, it is so great. And his resourcefulness is so great that he wastes absolutely nothing in our lives. He doesn't have a waste paper can. He doesn't have a trash bin, a trash can when it comes to us. He just doesn't have one because he has nothing to throw away. And this means that he will even use those things that seem the most difficult to us to actually address the deeper issues that he cares about even more. God used this man's paralysis to bring about an occasion where he forgave the man's sins and he proclaimed the true identity of his son to a room full of people. And now, through this story and through this man's paralysis and the miracle done here, 
That same miracle and that same identity of a saving Christ has been proclaimed to the whole world through Holy Scripture. And at the time, the man, he knew none of this. He doesn't know any of this. All he saw is that he was paralyzed. And we're all, every one of us, the most wise of us, every one of us, are hopelessly myopic when we're suffering. This is all we can see, the suffering. It fills our vision constantly. And our limitations make it impossible for us to see the bigger picture. And the intensity of our pain makes us unwilling to see anything else that God might be doing, even if it's right in front of us. And this is why... God's response to suffering. This is why God's response to your paralysis, to your difficulties, your hardships. It's never, go learn more. Go understand more. Go figure it out. Go study more. That's not his answer to our suffering. He simply says, trust me. The answer for you is trust me. And we see that in this account in verse 20. Verse verse 20 doesn't say, and when Jesus saw that they had wisdom to understand how this man's paralysis played a role in God's bigger plan, he decided to forgive the man's sins. Now what does it say? It says, and when he saw their faith, when he saw their faith, They just believed that guy in there, he can can do this. He can heal us. He can heal this man. He can heal our friend. They trusted him. As we said before, the Pharisees, they're shocked at Jesus' response. They're shocked for theological reasons. Because in their minds, Jesus was committing blasphemy. Daryl Bach Jerobach, he's a current New Testament scholar, he's an expert on the book of Luke. He mentions that blasphemy is violating God's majesty by taking to oneself something that's reserved for God. Jesus wasn't proclaiming, he wasn't simply proclaiming that God has forgiven this man his sins, which is what our elders do every Sunday morning during our assurance of pardon. Jesus is doing more than that. Jesus was claiming to have the authority to forgive sins in himself. And you know what? The Pharisees would have been entirely right that Jesus was a blasphemer if only they had been entirely right about something else. In their belief that Jesus was merely a man. And Jesus' response to them, it shows, it indicates that he's far more than a mere man. Because remember, the Pharisees didn't say anything at that moment in the crowds. They didn't say, how dare you? Right? These are things that they're thinking. They merely thought it. And Jesus responds with certain knowledge of what the Pharisees had been thinking. Because it may be that only God can ultimately forgive sins. Jesus doesn't deny it. But what is also true is that only God can know what's deep in our hearts. This too, the Old Testament proclaims and teaches. Places like Psalm 33 and Jeremiah 17. 
In fact, the rest of this account, it's, it's, it's a demonstration that the grace of our healer is, is even deeper than our deepest issue. The Pharisees thought that their deepest need was to be successful, sought after teachers, to be thought of as very religious, to be viewed with great esteem and respect. They thought their greatest need was to be successful, to be respected, and to live comfortably. But you know what their deepest need really was? To believe that Jesus was the Son of God. That was their deepest need. And Jesus' words and actions in this section show that he's the Messiah, that he's holding the highest offices of Israel's most important human leadership, but that he's also God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, And so as the divine priest, he can forgive all sins. As the divine prophet, he knows the thoughts and the intentions of every heart. And as the divine king, he rules over all creation, even a fallen creation, and he puts it back together again as he does by healing the man of his paralysis. The fact that he does all three of these things together at the same event means That the sum of these things is greater than the parts by themselves. Each miracle, each statement, each action is supporting the others into a cohesive whole. And what that means is that the grace of Jesus goes so much deeper than the depths of our issues because Jesus is always interested in healing the whole person, body and soul. The 4th century church father, Ambrose of Milan, he, when he looked at this passage, Ambrose saw this miracle here as a foretaste. He saw it as a preview, an appetizer to that greatest miracle of miracles. Seeing us absolutely paralyzed by our sin and our guilt and our shame. Seeing us absolutely paralyzed and unable to heal ourselves of our broken bodies and our diseases and our broken relationships, Jesus takes on our helplessness. He takes on our paralysis by dying. His lifeless body being carried by others to be laid not in a house but in a tomb. But his father looked at his son, and then he looked at us who believe in his son, his children, and the father says to us, your sins are forgiven. And then he raised his son from the dead. And he did this so that by giving us new life through the Holy Spirit, we too could could pick up our mats And couches of suffering like David's bed of tears, his couch of tears in Psalm 6. We too could pick up our mats of struggle and begin the journey home to paradise by faith. Your God's grace runs infinitely deeper than your deepest issue. And your God is always interested in all of who you are, not just a piece of you. 
In his time and in his way and by his promises, he will heal all of you and all of me and all of his creation. And so believe in the one whom the Father has sent, Jesus. And know that your sins are forgiven and know that your full healing awaits his coming again. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Father, we do pray and ask that you will do just that. That this week, you would help us see in very tangible ways, very literal ways, specific ways, how the grace held out to us in Christ, the grace that we have read about in this passage, addresses our deeper issues, addresses our deepest needs. Help us see the healing that we have in Christ. And to begin to experience it, even if it's a long haul, even if it's a a long revamp, a long work that you're going to do on a big issue in our lives. It may take a long time. But we ask that we would at least see your grace begin to address those issues this week. Do this for us. Do it that we may glorify you as the people at the end of this passage did. Do it that you may receive glory from us, your children. Even as you do it for our good and out of your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the Spirit. Amen.